I have the honor of introducing our preacher today, and he is one of my most favorite people and most dear to my heart, and he's my dad. And he has become a part of our Mission Point family this year, and um, he has a shepherd's heart and has been shepherding my heart my whole life. He runs with the Lord and tracks with the Lord, and he's going to get to do this morning what he is so gifted at by the Lord to do, and that's to, to teach the Word. So please welcome my dad, Jeff Gill. Wow, it is great to be with you guys, and uh, you know how proud I am of my daughter and son-in-law? Incredible. There's a verse in um, Third John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And I praise God for both my married daughters and their husbands love Jesus and are walking in the truth. In fact, usually, that was a, uh, that was a really brief intro that Lisa did. Usually she talks about a lot of things <laughs> about me. I mentioned I probably shouldn't. I'm going to throw it out there. She usually, she usually mentions that I'm a graduate of The Ohio State University. It always separates, and yes, we still do have a coach, and I probably should not have brought that up, but I do. But here's the deal. At Ohio State, that's where I came to know Christ, uh, through Campus Crusade, now called Crew, so I'm grateful. I'm, I'm really grateful. I say I met Jesus and I met my wife, so it is a good place, no doubt about that. But one of the things that, uh, as I have a chance to do a fair amount of speaking, that uh, people know, and it's typically after about knowing me for five minutes, I always talk about my grandkids. I have six grandchildren, ages 11 to 3. Now, Abe and Lisa have three incredible, precious ones. Ezra is eight, Naomi is six, and then there is Jude. Jude is three. We call him Jude the Dude. That he is like a cool kid. We call him the frat boy. That's his other nickname that we have for him. And he's got blonde hair, blue eyes, super charming personality. He's hilariously funny. And he knows it. And so he's just so much fun. And he says stuff. I mean, we all know that little kids say funny stuff, right? He says some of the funniest stuff that I've ever heard. My favorite Jude phrase is this. What the world? What the world? That's his what in the world? Like he's heard his mom and dad say, what in the world is going on? Or what in the world? So he goes, what the world? And he says that all the time. And I just think that's really funny because it's really profound because I say that all the time too. God, what in the world is going on? In fact, I'm kind of living in a season of that right now. Are you? God, what in the world or what the world is going on? You know, just because we love Jesus, just because we're committed to Jesus, awesome, we need to be, doesn't mean life's easy, right? Not at all. Our lives are filled with incredible challenges. And like me, I'm sure you just hear things on the news or you hear tragic uh, events that happen in our town, in our county, in our state, or maybe you have experienced trials recently that touch you in a very deep personal way. You, your family, maybe health issues. And sometimes you just want to say, God, what 
the world? Or what in the world is going on? I don't get it. And maybe you're living there. I like to read my Bible. I hope you do. It's a good thing to do when you're a Christian. Read your Bible. And somebody told me, actually, I got saved through crusade, but then a guy from the Navigator said, you need to have a quiet time. I said, a quiet what? A quiet time. Time with Jesus every morning. Read your Bible. Pray. And that has been an incredibly important practice for me in my 43 years of walking with Jesus. So one of the things that I like to do in my quiet time is I I read through the Bible in a year. That's something that I do. That's been something I've done for years because it's really good to read all of Scripture. And what I have found in being a student of Scripture for a long time is that sometimes I read verses and I want to say to God, what in the world? Because all Scripture doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, it's truth. We know that, we believe that, and we need to believe that, but it certainly doesn't make sense. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When Peter said, okay, do I really need to forgive? He said, oh, Peter, not just seven times, but what? Seventy times seven. There's a a verse in Philippians chapter four that I say, this one is incredibly like impossible. And here it is. Be anxious for nothing. Really? Be anxious for nothing? The Bible says that it does. For nothing. That's what it says. Well, God, can I be like really, really, really concerned but not quite be anxious? You know, we got to deal with God. Can I do this? And is this really okay? And no, no, no. Be anxious for nothing but do what? Pray. Pray to God who knows you, who loves you, who cares for you. So there are verses that I read and I scratch my head and they don't make sense. I can't make sense of them. And so I want to say in Jude form, what the world? What does this really mean? Well, I want to share with you, it's just a short passage, three verses, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. If you have a, your Bible, fantastic. You want to turn there, we'll have it up on the screen. But that first verse in this passage, verse 2, for me is one of these what the world kind of verses. Listen to this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, the fact that the word joy and trials are in the same sentence is confusing to me. Joy, trials, but that's what it says. But if you read the rest, the next couple of verses, now, you get to, now it begins to make a little more sense. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I love the book of James. I love the book of James. If you're not a student of the book of James, you should become one because this guy is direct. Do you know what the theme of the book of James is in a nutshell, in a phrase? Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. 
You know, to say you have faith, to say you believe, to sing wonderful worship songs, and to not do it and live it out, it's kind of useless faith. Because as he goes on to say over and over in his book, you need to demonstrate the reality of your faith through how you live your life. And so that's the theme of the book. And so when James says, hey, and isn't it interesting, he gives this little introduction, hey, my name is James. By the way, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials. It's like when you write a letter, often the first thing you talk about is what's really on your mind. Here you go. Be joyful when life is incredibly hard. Now, when I read this first verse, some some really key words just really pop out at me, and I think they're critically important to understand. Let me talk about the word trials. Because I think for many of us, when we hear of trials, we just equate it with suffering. Really, really, really hard stuff. And it certainly can be. But that's really not the root meaning, the root meaning of the word trials. It means to test, to examine, to put to the test. It's a test. Oh, high grace college students, that's going to be your life. Papers, tests, more papers, more tests. This is a test. That's what these trials are. They are tests. And then he goes on and he uses a similar but not the same word, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Okay, how are these two words different? Because they are. The second word translated testing, testing of your faith, is a word that means to see whether or not it's genuine. That's the point. To evaluate the authenticity, to evaluate the genuineness of what is being tested. Now here's what James is saying here. Consider it joy when you encounter trials because those trials reveal some things about you. Those trials are God's evaluation to show you where you are in your walk with him, in your journey with him. I want you to see the phrase, though, this is so key, knowing that the testing of your faith, your trust in God, your commitment to Christ, your devotion to him, knowing that the testing of your faith is what God's testing. See, we can think, oh, I'm being tested. Okay, can I gut it out? Do I have the stamina? Am I emotionally strong enough? Am I mentally tough enough? Am I physically strong enough to be able to get through this trial? That's not what this verse is about. Knowing that the testing of your faith, how devoted are you to him? How deeply do you believe his promises? How committed are you to what he has said is true? And how does that affect the way you live your life? Especially when you feel blindsided with one of those tests. By the way, those, those tests can be very blindsiding, can't they? Sometimes the toughest things in our lives are not things that God said. Next Tuesday between 10.15 and 10.30, you're going to get a test. In fact, there's this thing, I don't know if we still use this term, but there is a term in my generation, the older generation, here's the term, pop quiz. Do you guys know what a pop quiz is? Those two words have incited riots in classrooms. They have, because the teacher will say, hey, get out a piece of paper, get out a pen, 
and you're going to take a quiz. And people like go crazy. Students go crazy. What do they say? That is not fair. And, and, and riots break out. Probably. Um, it's not fair. Why? Because you didn't tell me you were going to be testing. You didn't tell me what was on the test itself. Of course, good teachers do that. It's so unfair. Now I feel like a victim. Now I feel like uh, you're trying to make me fail. You're trying to embarrass me. You're trying to, uh, you know, just do something that is, is just wrong. Does God give you notice about the tougher tests in your life? He certainly doesn't me. <laughs> I got a bunch of them in my years on this earth and years since I've walked with Christ. I get, I've gotten blindsided. How many of you have felt really blindsided by tests? You all have. We all have. And that's how they occur. Here's what I want you to notice, though, that I think the key to walking through the test is you have to wait on God. This idea of waiting on the Lord. Here's the thing. I, many of you are like this. I am a fixer and a problem solver. I uh, have done that. I have earned degrees to be able to do that better. I'm a fix-it person. I'm a problem solver. So when a test comes, I try to figure out how to get through it, how to pass it, how to get on with my life. And often, you know, this testing of our faith is not about us and how strong we are, how capable we are. It's about waiting on the resources of God to be poured into your life. It's about waiting on his grace to experience that grace, to be able to persevere in a godly way through that test. That's really the point here. Knowing that the testing of your faith. So we have to wait on the Lord. How many of you like to wait? I hate waiting. You'd think I would have learned to appreciate that more. I have a hard time with it. But waiting on the Lord often means waiting a long time. God, would you please show up? Would you please resolve this? Would you please answer this prayer? God, please. Would you do that? And he goes, we're going to wait a while longer. That's how he often tests our faith. There's a beautiful, this idea of waiting on the Lord is such a beautiful uh, truth in Scripture. And there's one in Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6. I love these verses. The psalmist writes this, he says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Then he repeats it, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Now, I don't know a lot about watchmen, so I, I studied a little bit, like watchmen 3,000 years ago when this was written. And basically, you know, here's, I found a con what a commentator said. I thought this was good. Here's what he wrote. He said, these alert, keen-eyed sentinels, sentinels is like a guard, among other duties, protected the city from danger, giving themselves no rest. Their duties were both tedious and dangerous. The repetition twice of more than the watchmen wait for the morning serves to capture this tediousness of their task but also to heighten the urgency of the psalm's longing to see God show himself. When we wait on the Lord, there's urgency, there's eagerness, but there's got to be a whole bunch of patience 
as well. Have you found in your life, those of you like me who've walked with the Lord for maybe 30 years or 40 years or more, that God's usually not in a hurry to do deep things in your life? He isn't. And uh, we need to learn to wait on him. So here's what I want you to know. Here's what's so critical for you to know. And this is one of my three big points this morning from this passage. That is that tests reveal truth about us. Tests reveal truth about us. See, God doesn't test us so God could say, oh, wow, I didn't know you knew that. Those of us that understand that God is sovereign, we use this word omniscient, all-knowing. God doesn't have to test us to find out where we are or what we know, right? So God tests us so that we can find out where we are and what we know. That's really his purpose and whether or not we will trust him. These tests help us see where we really are spiritually, where we really are. We can't fake our spiritual status when we're going through a difficult test. Tests come in many shapes and sizes. They're called multicolored. That's one translation of the word many. They often blindside us. They catch us off guard so we can't prepare for them or fake our response. (laughs) One of the things that I've thought about is I've thought about this idea of tests and trials. Often when we think about the word trials, we think about, oh, really hard times and suffering. But again, what I want us to see this morning, that there's more to tests than just suffering. They are to reveal That's really their primary purpose. And so some of the tests we go through are when we're in a point in our lives where we're really quite vulnerable and temptation comes. That's a test. Are you going to give in? Are you going to say no? Sometimes those tests, they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Sometimes God puts us in a context where we have to work with, go to school with, room with somebody who's really difficult I mean, it's like, we just kind of, we clash. And yet God tells me, I need to love them. Sometimes the tests come where God says, you know you are my ambassador. You know that you are my representative. You know one of your jobs is to be a missionary of the gospel. And then God puts us in a place or a context where to speak up for Jesus is going to be really hard. Very unpopular. I want to tell you a quick story. It's about 25 years ago. Before I moved to Winona and started working at Grace 16 years ago, what I did prior to that is I was a pastor, and I planted a church just north of Columbus, Ohio, and I was there for 20 years. Probably, it's, I bet it's been a good 25 years ago, I had a guy who cut my hair, my barber. And when you get your hair cut about every three weeks like I do, you get to know your barber really well. And this guy's name was Scott. He's about 10 or 15 years older than me. He was a self-proclaimed child of the 60s. He, had, he, he, was, he was a really cool guy, but he called me the Bible thumper, his Bible thumper, uh, you know, guy, he cut his hair. And uh, one of the things that Scott did a lot is he talked about his oldest daughter, who he was incredibly proud of. Her name was Melissa. And he told me numerous times, oh, Melissa, I'm so proud of Melissa. She's an honor student. And she's a really good athlete, and Melissa um, is going to go 
get an undergrad degree in political science, go on to law school. She's going to be an incredible attorney. And I listen. I'd say, wow, she sounds amazing. One day I'm reading our little town paper, similar to the Times Union, and I see her name in the obituaries. And I say, what? And I knew parents, Scott and, and I'm like, oh no. So I read about a tragic car accident. She and her boyfriend, it was spring break, their senior year of high school, were gonna travel down to Florida for spring break. He fell asleep at the wheel. They both were killed. So I make a beeline to my barber shop, and I walk in, and he, he owned it, but there were three other chairs, three other stylists that work there, and, and the place probably had 10 to 15 people in there. It was just really pretty packed out. I made a beeline to Scott. I walked right up to him. He sees me, and I just threw my arms around him. It still makes me so emotional. Threw my arms around him and just hugged him, and I said, I am so sorry. And he patted me on the back. And then I hadn't even been there for 30 seconds. I hear a voice behind me. And she said, hey, pastor. It was one of the women who worked with him. Hey, pastor, do you think Melissa's in heaven? And I wheeled around and I looked at her and I said, I didn't know Melissa. Everything Scott has said about her is she was a wonderful person. She was a wonderful student. I said, if Melissa put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, then we can be confident she's in heaven. Well, the place had gone silent. I'm serious. I mean, you know how the, the noise you hear in a place like that where people are having all kinds of conversations? The place had gone silent. So everybody heard me say that. She had rage in her face. And she looked at me and she said, but what if she didn't do that? I said, well, I believe the Bible. And the Bible is clear that those who confess their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord will go to heaven. And then the rage was even worse. And she said to me, if that's who God is, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And I turned back and I gave Scott a hug and I walked out. And I tell you that to say that is one of the few times that I pass a test because I haven't always been that bold. I haven't always been that upfront. But that's the kind of test when God talks about testing us or the testing of our faith, he puts us in those situations and he says, are you going to speak up for me? Are you going to be ashamed of me? So we need to be aware, my brothers and sisters, that these tests that God brings into our lives are to reveal truth about us. Where am I? Where am I? Okay? So that, that's number one I wanted to share with you. I want to give you a second one from this passage. And that is that perseverance has a purpose Perseverance has a purpose. It goes on to say in verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Some translations are endurance. Same thing, perseverance or endurance. Let perseverance finish its work 
This is awesome. So that you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. A exceedingly godly person is the point. Perseverance has its purpose. The word perseverance simply means the power to withstand hardship or stress, being able to endure. You know, isn't mature, complete, lacking in nothing the goal of the Christian life? If it isn't, what is? I mean, to be like Jesus, mature spiritually, isn't that God's ultimate goal? It's not to be successful or wealthy or comfortable or fulfill all your dreams, is it? No, it's to be mature complete, lacking in nothing, to reflect in every way our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this element of godly perseverance is an exceedingly important piece in us becoming that way. And that's why tests are so important. Because they help us see where we are in a journey. Now, let me tell you something that I've learned, and I think I've learned it more recently, (laughs) Um, and it's been incredibly helpful to me. One of the things that I think matters a great deal when you're going through your tests, your trials, your very difficult times, and you're waiting on God, is what matters most is where your mind is focused. What is your focus? If your focus is, I'm a victim, If your focus is, this is so unfair. If your focus is, this is so rotten. If your focus is, I'm just going to say the heck with everything and do whatever I want. Then you're not persevering the way this passage talks about it. Here's two things I focus on a lot when it comes to my life, especially the hard times. I believe that God is sovereign. You know that word? Fully in control. And God either causes things to happen or allows things to happen. But God is in control. God supersedes, superintends, is over all, period. The Bible is crystal clear related to that. Number two, he's a good, good father. I love that song, by the way. He's a good, good father. He's a perfect father. He's perfect in his love toward us. So when I'm going through my very difficult times, my trials, my struggles, the tests in life, I need my focus to be exactly there. That's where it is for me. He's in control. He's not been blindsided at all. Number two, he is such a perfect father. He is so good. I can't even begin to understand how much he loves me. He is for me in every way in my life. Now, can you see how when that's your focus and not I'm a victim, poor me, my life is horrible, I'm going to say the heck with Christianity. Can you, say, can you see that when your focus is on his power and his goodness, it makes all the difference in the world? It really does. And I think that's the key to pursuing through the test with godly perseverance. It's where is your focus? Jesus was a great model of focus. Here's a beautiful verse. It's found in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51. I love this verse. It says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is code for the crucifixion. He was fixed. 
Jesus knew what his purpose was. He knew what his plan was. They put the King James here too because I, I, I like the way the King James says this. It says, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's about focus, my friends. When you're going through the tough time, where does your mind dwell? Where is your focus? Paul said it this way, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is of good report, if there be anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, let your what? Say it with me. Mind dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. And the God of peace will be with you. (laughs) That's how it works. Where's your focus? Super important. If we're going to persevere with godliness. Now, another phrase in this passage that's, well, actually, I wanted to share one other thing with you. Yeah, out of Hebrew. It's up there on the screen. Good, thank you. Just another example of this idea of focus. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, this idea of focus. You and I are to fix our eyes on Jesus especially during the tough tests of life. Let perseverance have its work. Let perseverance finish its work is the actual phrase. You know what that tells me? That tells me that, that when I'm going through the tests and trials of life, persevering with godliness is not automatic. You know, you don't get saved and it's like, okay, God guarantees you that you're going to be this amazing growing Christian for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years. No guarantee, my friends. (laughs) There isn't. That's his plan, but that's not a guarantee. Here's what we can do. We can sabotage the work. We can sabotage the perseverance. That means we quit. We give up. I tried Christianity. It does not work. My life is more miserable than it used to be. I'm more unhappy than I've ever been. It doesn't work. Life is too hard. I've heard people say that. We can sabotage the work. Number two, we can short-circuit the work through sin. Temptation comes our way. Do you you all know that when you're going through a really, really hard time, that's probably when you're most vulnerable to give in to sin? It's really true. You can short-circuit God wanting to pour out his grace in your life. And then number three... We can suppress the work. By the way, three S's. That's my shout out to Kondo, the king of alliteration. I got three S's. We can suppress the work through bitterness, through playing the victim. You see, how we respond in the midst of the test is so important. We can sabotage it. We can short circuit it. We can uh, suppress it. Sever it, and we will not get the benefit of it if that's the case. Let me review, test reveal truth about us. Number two, perseverance has a purpose that you may grow up spiritually. And then number three, the right response is rejoicing. (laughs) The right response is rejoicing. Consider it pure joy. Consider it all joy. Consider it complete joy. That's what this word means. But here's what I want you to know. The joy 
during tests or trials in life have nothing to do with how pleasant the test is. Because it's usually not pleasant. It's usually very difficult. The joy is not in the test. And the joy is not in the pain that comes with the test. The joy is in the result. The joy is in what God does as we walk through it. That's very much the point. There's a beautiful biblical illustration. Beautiful. In Genesis chapter 22. Let me just read this. You don't need to turn there unless you want to, but let me just read this to you. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut, through, when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Look at this. We will worship and we will come back to you. The next few verses, Isaac basically says, hey, father, where is the lamb? And Abraham says to him, oh, God, God will provide the lamb. Picking up in verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. We get some additional insight. By the way, Abraham passed the test, didn't he? He passed. Get some additional insight of what was going on in Abraham's mind over in Hebrews 11, verse 17. Listen to this. It says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him this promise, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, the tests are the testing of our what? The testing of our faith. Do we believe the promises of God is the point. I want to close with a, a personal story, but it's more about my dear wife. By the way, it's pretty hot up here, but I'm good. I'm good. 2014 was an incredibly challenging year for my wife and me. The day after Christmas, December 26, 2013, my wife, who had had a, uh, something in the upper palate of her mouth that was a great concern to our dentist, who sent her away to get that biopsied, we received a phone call on the 26th 
that my wife had malignant, a malignant tumor in the roof of her mouth. And so what resulted was about a week and a half later, my wife had major oral cancer surgery where half of the roof of her mouth was removed. And she had to wear a prosthetic device that she will wear for the rest of her life. As you can imagine, uh, that was a really tough thing. That was a very difficult thing. And we walked through the next months together. Initially, she could really not talk. And then she eventually, if you heard her now, she sounds perfect. (laughs) You know, she sounds great. And it was during that time that God uh, did some amazing things through his word, through himself, through incredible friends and people who loved us well and supported us well. And yet it was hard. There was one point in which if it would have metastasized, it would have gone to her lungs and she would have been dead in a year. And so we lived through that together and I watched my wife's incredible strength and she would say, oh, I had as many bad days as good days. I had as many scary days as I did hopeful days. And I say, I know, honey. But it was pretty amazing. And we both really grew. And we both prayed and cried out to God, help us to pursue this in a godly way. Fast forward to just right around Thanksgiving of 2014. Kathy's about 11 months from her oral cancer diagnosis and surgery. She was in for her annual exam with her OBGYN, and there's a problem, a malignant tumor on one of her breasts. And so surgery radiation treatment and she would say that that one felt like a punch in the gut because really God we've we've kind of been through this really and yet uh, God was unbelievably gracious and my wife is doing amazingly well she gets six months checkups and she's been cancer free for three years and we say hallelujah Lord we're so grateful for that And in 2016, here's what she did. She felt the Lord had impressed on her heart to start a cancer support group in Kosciuszko County. So she went to the YMCA. We're both members of our YMCA. We love our YMCA, by the way. And we went to some of the leaders of our YMCA, and Kathy had designed a full-year program with speakers and and just kind of laid this whole thing out. She's good at that. And they listened to her, and they said, we're all in. We'll sponsor it. We'll host it. And Kathy is the leader of a monthly cancer support group in Kosciuszko County called Celebrating Survivalship. And she has many cancer survivors and people right now going through chemo at all stages of their cancer journey who are part of that group. And she brings in oncologists, and she brings in nutritionists, and it's a support group, and it's an education group, and it is amazing. And I am very proud of my wife. I'm very grateful that she didn't kind of shrivel up in the corner and get angry and bitter. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm so proud of her that this godly perseverance that God gave her has resulted in a very beautiful person and a very beautiful life and how that's spilling out into the lives of others. My wife wears a little uh, necklace 24 hours a day she has for years. And there are three charms. Is that what you call them? Little things? Charms, I think. 
trying to look up the word. What are those called? But anyway, there are three of them on it. One is a J, Jeffrey, like that. The other one is a K for Catherine. And the third one that she bought three years ago is a beautiful silver bar with the word strength. Strength. Strength from God because she's strong in the Lord and what the Lord has done in her life. And so as I look at out at all of you, many of you have stories that are similar where during your darkest seasons of life, during your times of great trials and testing, Jesus really, really showed up. And as a result of your commitment to godly perseverance, as a result of your commitment to fixing your eyes on him and not becoming victims and not engaging in self-pity, but really saying, God, pour out your grace and help me and strengthen me and grow me up. You too are trophies of that grace. We applaud you. We appreciate you. Please continue to teach the rest of us to do that. I'm going to ask the worship team and Gabe to come on out, and we're going to pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. It's so relevant. It's so powerful. It's so timely for many of us as we think about how hard life can be and how confusing life can be. And yet we cling to the realities that you are fully in control and that you are completely and totally good. And your love for us never, ever fails. Thank you for that. And Lord, in a special way, I pray for any of my dear brothers and sisters here today who are going through a significant time of testing. Lord, would you encourage their hearts this morning and help them to know that you are there, you are with them, you will never, ever leave or forsake them. And that as a result of this, there can be an element of joy because of what you produce, godliness in our lives. Thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.